so I know I don't look much like Aaron Clifford, <laughs> which is who you were expecting to be teaching today. Uh, her flight on Friday got uh, canceled because of the snow in Grand Rapids, and then it got canceled again on Saturday because of D.C. So I'm here, and we have a little saying at our house. You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit, okay? So that's what it is for you guys today. You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit, my friends. We are going to have a conversation this morning. It's going to feel, um, it's going to feel more like a lecture than a sermon in some ways um, because we're going to cover uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecostal doctrine, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's an idea that is kind of a second baptism that you get after salvation um, for power and witness that uh, it shows itself with uh, the laying on of hands usually and uh, speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about that. Is it a baptism that um, we ought to be seeking? Uh, how should we think about this? Et cetera, et cetera. Now, before we dive into that, though, I'd like to um, lay down a few ground rules, if you will. Uh, these come from Dr. Gary Brashears. He's a professor at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. And just as a way for us to think about how we interact uh, with folks as we deal with different doctrines. So he says there's four things. Number one, there's things that we die for, okay? So if you put a, a gun to my head and you said, uh, renounce Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, I would say, no, you'd have to kill me, all right? There's things that I'm willing to die for. Did Jesus bodily resurrect from the grave? I, I will die for that, all right? So there are some doctrines we will die for, all right? But that list is pretty small. Uh, then there are some doctrines that we will divide for, okay? So um, the Protestant-Catholic divide is really uh, kind of a, an issue on the nature of authority, all right? Protestants say that uh, Scripture alone is our authority, uh, whereas the Catholic Church says it's not only Scripture, it's also church tradition, and the word of the Pope, and that has all kinds of ramifications. Uh, and so that is something that we feel st strongly enough about, that during the Protestant Reformation, uh, we felt like it was something that we actually needed to divide for. Now, we still think that folks that we divide for, well, at least in, in this scenario, uh, our Catholics, our brothers and sisters in Christ, they believe in Christ, his resurrection, um, but we do see the nature of authority differently. There's also issues of nature of the nature of Scripture, Okay, we believe that it's inspired by the Spirit. Yes, written by human uh, authors, but it was inspired by the Spirit. The Spirit breathed this into them. Uh, it is infallible and therefore authoritative. All right, some liberal theologians uh, believe that the Bible is strictly human documents that speak to a real reality, but they're not authoritative. Very different way of understanding Scripture. And um, that is something we would divide over, okay, because uh, that has massive ramifications uh, for how we live, uh, how we view God and scripture and all that. And then there is uh, the third category, things that we debate for, okay? Things that we debate for. So this would be things like the role of women in the church, um, questions like can you lose your salvation, is there eternal security, uh, Calvinism or Arminianism, election or free will. Those are things we would debate for. I don't think that those are... Um, big enough to divide for, but they are things that we would debate for, and debate vigorously. Like, there's no problem having strong debates, you know, energized debates, where we're going to have a conversation about these things. Uh, um, but at the end of the day, we don't believe that they're big enough that we ought to divide over, okay? And then the last thing is decide for, okay? These are like the trivial things, uh, like, 
what in the world are the Nephilim in Genesis 6? All right, nobody really knows. You're like, yeah, I think it's this. Cool, I think it's this. All right, fine, whatever. No, like, one day we'll find out what are these, like, half man, half angel things or whatever. Like, we'll talk to God. We'll, he'll explain it. Uh, or, like, how tall is Goliath? Do you know that some ancient manuscripts, they say that he is six span and a cubit, or six cubits and a span, excuse me, uh, which would equal about nine foot six inches. Okay, that's what I grew up with. Other ancient texts say four uh, cubits in a span, which would be six foot six, okay? Either way, that's like way taller than the average dude uh, at that time, all right? The average dude's like five five, all right? So if you're six six, you're going to feel like a giant. Nine six, you definitely feel like a giant. So um, either way, it's like, all right, that's just something to decide for, whatever. It probably is not a huge deal either way. This topic that we're going to look at today is in the debate for category, okay? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that it is a divide for issue. Uh, I've got friends um, that are Pentecostal. Uh, we are close. We're tight. We can have a debate over this. This should not be a thing that divides Christ church. I personally don't believe. So um, what I'd like to do today is talk a little bit about it. And, and here's one of the problems that I have. And I'm just, I, I think I can do this as much as anybody else. But I do think that Christians, we tend to push, we tend to push things up the ladder, <laughs> right? Like, this thing is uh, such a big deal. Like, this is a divide-for issue. No. In fact, quite honestly, I'm not saying that there are no divide-for things. Of course, there's some divide-for things and absolutely some die-for things. But whenever we can, we should attempt to push things down, okay? We want to push them down the ladder to debate-for, decide-for whenever we can, all right? I think this is a uh, debate-for issue today. So what I'd like to do um, is I'd like to lay out arguments for the Pentecostal doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to tell you uh, some arguments against this doctrine uh, and what I think is probably the best way to think about this issue. I uh, hope it'll actually bring a little bit more clarity on the type of church that I think God is asking us to continue to move towards. You can disagree with me on this. This is a debate for issue, so it's totally fine. But I don't believe it's even close to a divide for issue, okay? So with that said, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to start off with a little bit of history on the doctrine, okay? We're going to start there. I'm going to try to fly through that a little bit. Then I'm going to argue for this doctrine from a Pentecostal point of view, okay? Uh, from Scripture, I'm going to explain, do my best to explain why uh, um, this is a good view to hold. And then I'm going to argue against it, also from Scripture, on why I don't think it's a good view to hold, okay? Uh, I will tell you this right now. I can't be completely unbiased. I'm not Pentecostal, okay? So I'm going to do my best to give you a good argument, what I think a Pentecostal theologian is going to say, um, but I'm sure I'm not completely bi uh, unbiased because I'm not Pentecostal. So uh, I will explain to you why, even though I think that um, um, there are good arguments for it, why I think that there's better arguments against it, okay? Uh, then we'll have a little discussion on cessationism. No, we won't. Sorry, I'm not going to have time for that this morning. I'm just telling you that right now. So um, cessationism is basically, uh, it's what I grew up with. The college that I went to, the Bible college I went to, taught me, taught this as well. Basically believes that when the um, scriptures were completed and all the apostles uh, were dead, that um, the spirit no longer did the miraculous works. They were only for that age, okay? It's, uh, it's not great theology. It's probably even worse um, biblical understanding of what scripture teaches. Uh, we don't believe that. We think that the gifts of the spirit are still in play today. 
Uh, if you'd like more, uh, like have a conversation about it, I'd be happy to do that. We can turn to a couple of, or to a passage of scripture, um, and I can explain why I don't think. We're not going to have time for that one today. But what I will do is then I'll give you a third option, what I might call the third option, okay, between maybe Pentecostal and cessationism. So let's start with history. Cool? Y'all ready? Y'all better get them pens going because I'm telling you, we got some ground to cover, but it's going to be good and I'm going to be fast. History. Where does the Pentecostal doctrine of baptism of the Holy Spirit come from? All right. Now, uh, up until the 19th century, so like the 1800s, this was really not a conversation that was being had, this concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second baptism, something that happens after salvation that you need uh, um, to, to experience all that the Spirit has, okay? So it's a pretty new thing. However, in the 19th century, uh, this idea of a holiness movement began to sweep through America and Europe, especially started in Europe. It's actually by a guy named John Wesley, all right? John Wesley, awesome dude, intense dude. Uh, he actually believed that there was something called entire sanctification or Christian perfection. So he believed that there was a second baptism, uh, I don't think he called it that, I think he said a second experience of the Holy Spirit, that would allow you to have entire sanctification or basically to become perfect, to not sin anymore, okay? Uh, it's, it's interesting, I, I come from, I have, both of my grandfathers were pastors, my grandfather on my mom's side was a cessationist, I think to this day still is, uh, grandfather on my uh, dad's side uh, is actually uh, United Holiness, which comes right off of this stuff. My grandfather, my dad, so I believe that he had received a second blessing of the Spirit and was basically holy. I knew the man. <laughs> Not convinced um, that he had quite gotten there. But um, that uh, comes out of John Wesley. So the second blessing was to help you, uh, to, to pursue holiness, to be holy. Um, John Wesley is actually a pretty awesome dude. Uh, he started Methodism. Methodism became the Methodist Church, that denomination, which ironically is uh, what we call a mainline and, and quite liberal denomination uh, now today. Uh, John Wesley was not uh, considered a liberal by any stretch of the imagination, very conservative guy. It's also where we get other things like the um, Pilgrim Holiness or United Holiness denomination, Wesleyanism, which we are actually in that uh, um, kind of vein. Uh, we were planted out of a church called Central Wesleyan, uh, the Nazarene Church, a, a lot of those things. So... Um, you could be holy, that's what John Wesley said, but you needed a second experience or a second encounter with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the late 1800s, okay, uh, there was a convention called the Keswick Convention, where there was a guy, number, it still happens to this day in England, the Keswick Convention. It's like a, a week-long Bible conference. Uh, some of the greatest teachers uh, in Christianity over the last hundred years have taught there. Uh, one of the things that they taught at the very beginning, I don't know if it's still true to this day, um, but at the very beginning, um, they taught this idea of a higher life or this second blessing. R.A. Torrey, who was a really well-known uh, Bible teacher at the time, was the one who first coined this terminology, baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? The second experience, something you're supposed to go after. They viewed it as this thing that was going to help you pursue holiness and holy living, all right? But then in 1906, at the Azusa Street Revival that broke out in Southern California, uh, Philip Seymour took that terminology, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they saw it as a second baptism of the Holy Spirit that you received after salvation that evidenced itself in speaking in tongues, and that's when you actually got the power of the Spirit in your life. 
All right, so you needed this thing. You had salvation first, and then you had baptism of the Holy Spirit, which allowed you to speak in tongues and have all the rest of the supernatural gifts or access to them. That was a second thing that happened, and that all Christians should be pursuing it, okay? This is a core tenet for Pentecostal theology to this day. Um, Pentecostalism actually kind of was birthed out of the Azusa Street revivals that happened in 1906. There's actually, uh, it's written into their core beliefs um, for the Assemblies of God denomination. They're one of the largest Pentecostal denominations. There's a lot of churches that you've heard uh, of that are Pentecostal, okay? Uh, you've probably heard of Hillsong Church, uh, Bethel Church. Uh, you've got uh, things like a church called the Dream Center. Here in Grand Rapids, you've got Grand Rapids First. Uh, that's an Assemblies of God church. Um, the Res Life churches are Pentecostal. Radiant churches are Pentecostal. Um, they believe in, in a two-stage kind of salvation and baptism. All right, so uh, Church of God in Christ is another big assembly, or excuse me, another big uh, uh, denomination. Um, 25% of the global church is Pentecostal. It's like 500 million Pentecostals, okay? Um, and these are not, they're not idiots. Uh, people way smarter than me um, are Pentecostal theologians, okay? Now, what I'd like to do, though, is talk about what is this concept that they say, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's written right into um, their kind of statement of belief. So uh, number seven, I think they've got 16 or 17. Number seven just literally says baptism in the Holy Spirit. They actually changed it to in instead of of, which I appreciate, and I'll explain why in a little while. But they say all believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire. According to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, this was the normal experience of all in the early church, early Christian church, with it comes the endowment of power for life and service, the bestowment of the gifts, and their uses in the work of the ministry. I actually buy everything that they write there. I think that that's actually all really good theology. However, I'm going to disagree with some of the ways they define some of what they say here. Okay, uh, If you were to read the very next uh, one that they have, it's number eight uh, in their kind of doctrinal statement. It says, the initial physical evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit they say the baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. So they are saying that there is salvation, which I agree with, and that's when I believe that the baptism in the Holy Spirit happens at salvation. They say that there is another baptism in the Holy Spirit, which actually shows itself through tongues. So if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have this yet, okay? Um, I'm going to probably, well, not probably, I am going to disagree with that. But what I'd like to do is explain why they believe that this is true. So to do that, we got to dive into some texts this morning. Cool? So the first place that we see this concept of a two-stage salvation and then uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 1. Flip open there. Acts chapter 1. Uh, now, I do want to say a couple of things as you're flipping there. All right? Uh, this is not original to me. All right? Uh, most of uh, what I'm giving you this morning I got from Pastor Out West not original with him either, though. He gets it from uh, a couple of guys. Uh, actually, there's more than a couple, but uh, two in particular. Uh, Dr. Michael Green, um, who was, I think he would describe himself as a charismatic Christian, but not a Pentecostal Christian. So he's not Pentecostal. He was actually a professor uh, at Oxford, a brilliant theologian, just passed away a couple years ago. If you really want to dive in deep here, all right, uh, his book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit by Michael Green, Fantastic, but that's going to be some deeper reading. Uh, another guy, Simon Ponsonby, a brilliant thinker, theologian, writer, and teacher. 
Uh, he wrote a book called God Inside Out. Um, he's actually also in Oxford, uh, oddly enough. Um, but this is where this is coming from. I think that it's really good theology and scriptural interpretation, uh, but you can be the judge. All right? So let's dive in. Acts chapter 1, uh, we have starting in verse 4 through 8. On one occasion, while he, and this is Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, John the Baptist, baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. That's key. We're going to talk about that a little while. And to the ends of the earth. So, a couple of questions. Were these people that he's talking to followers of Jesus? What do you think? Turn to your neighbor and tell them. Yes or no? Were these people followers of Jesus? Yes. They were. These are the disciples, right? These are the apostles. These are the 12 that have been with him, minus Judas, all right? These are uh, um, folks that uh, even when they saw him crucified, they didn't give up hope. And then in his resurrection, they're still following him. So these folks, obviously, they're followers of Jesus. Were they saved through faith in Christ? Absolutely. Of course, yes. That's how they're, they're saved. Did they have the Holy Spirit yet, though? No. They didn't. They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. So flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, ruach, came from the heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they speak in tongues. Pentecostals believe that this is the two-stage experience that all Christians at all times should expect to have. Okay? So you get saved, Acts 1, then you receive the Spirit. That's what happens later in Acts 2. Now, there's two other places. It's not the only place that we see this two-stage understanding of you get saved, and then you get the Spirit later. All right? We also see it in Acts chapter 8. So flip over there. We're going to go to Acts 8 and then Acts 19. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. 14 through 17. It says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers, that, uh, the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So, uh, we have a group of people, Samaritans, that had heard the message about Jesus, had accepted Jesus, and were baptized in Jesus' name. Okay, But they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. So it's not until Peter and John, apostles, leaders of the Jerusalem church, come to Samaria see them, hear that they have become followers of Jesus, but they haven't received the Spirit. They pray for them, lay hands on them, and they then receive the Holy Spirit. This is 
definitely, there's no way around it, this is a two-stage moment. Salvation, and then later on, we don't know if it's like a couple days later, a few weeks later, a couple months later, we're not sure. We just know it's after they have become followers of Jesus. They eventually then receive the Holy Spirit, okay? Two-stage process. Acts 19, Acts 19. Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, okay? And asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Like, who's your teacher, dude? Like, you ought to find out. So Paul said, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. In other words, John had been baptizing people, all right, as an act of repentance and telling them, teaching them, there is a Messiah to come. Now, Paul is here and he's like, let me tell you who this Messiah is. It's Jesus. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So here, uh, Pentecost will say this is another example of two-stage, right? They're disciples, it says. Okay? They were baptized, the baptism of John, not in Jesus, but then they get baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, they lay hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they actually speak in tongues, and they prophesy. All right? So Pentecost will say, well, that's another, that's a two-stage process that we see. So, um, many individuals have taught this. And like I told you before, this is like, like smart dudes, smart ladies, all right? Is it the best way to view these passages of Scripture? Is, should we be seeking a second baptism, a two-stage experience where you get Christ, but eventually, one day, hopefully, you'll have someone lay hands on you and... You'll receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You'll, you'll evidence that by speaking in tongues. Is that something that we should be pursuing? So uh, what I'd like to do now is give you four thoughts uh, on why I'm not convinced that this is the best way to read the New Testament and that it's something that we should look for. Cool? So thought number one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a brand new doctrine. All right, now it's 100 years old, give or take. You're like, well, how is that brand new? Well, Christianity has been around for like 2,000 years, okay? The first 1,900 years, uh, this idea of being baptism, especially a second experience, uh, second baptism that results in speaking in tongues, it not really talked about at all, nothing that I could even find, okay? And, and so we really start seeing this described, discussed only about 100 years ago, all right? Uh, that, that doesn't mean that it's wrong, okay? Just because it's newer doesn't mean it's wrong, but... At minimum, it should at least throw off some flags for us, okay? Throw off some flags like, hey, hang on, like we need to check and see why hasn't the church talked about this for 1,900 years and all of a sudden now we've got something new? Doesn't mean it's wrong, just means that it should throw up some flags, okay? Number two, baptism of the Holy Spirit is never used in the New Testament. So this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? The word baptism is always used in the New Testament as a verb. You get baptized into the Holy Spirit, or baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, Matthew chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist says, He, Jesus, will baptize you with or in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who is doing the baptizing, and the thing you get baptized into or with 
is the Holy Spirit, okay? When we do baptism here, all right, water baptism, I should say, when we do water baptism, um, I baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I baptize them into what? Water. <laughs> That's why we call it water baptism, okay? It is uh, Christ commanded us to do this, and it's actually a public proclamation that you are leaving one family and joining another one. You are leaving darkness and entering light. You are coming from whatever you were before, and you are joining the Christian family, okay? When we baptize, we baptize in water, all right? In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's spoken of in the Gospels four times, just what John the Baptist says, and then a couple of times in Acts. That's really all we hear about it. Jesus is the one doing the baptizing, and he's baptizing in the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, uh, even though it's never used in the New Testament, um, this concept of water baptism or being baptized in the Spirit, uh, it's only talked about the four times that John the Baptist says it in the Gospels, okay? It's the same thing. It's not different things. It's just this is one of the few things that the Gospels actually all share the same story. And it's not used at all in the Old Testament, only a handful of times after this, which is really uh, after the Gospels, you've got Acts 1 and Acts 11, really the only other two times that we get this language of being baptized in the Spirit, uh, happen in these two. So all of these writings, though, are right on a very, very important thing that's happening in the New Testament. It's right on the seam of when we are moving from one covenant to a new covenant, okay? Big, big, massive, massive change that's happening. They're going from the covenant of the law, okay, the day of the law, to the day of the Spirit, the covenant of the Spirit. So we go from this covenant to this covenant. God is doing something really, really big in this moment, all right? Now, this matters, and I want to give you a couple quick things to, to help set a little bit of context for one of the passages that I just talked about. So before Acts 1 and the Spirit comes, uh, generally speaking, the Spirit only showed up on a handful of people and only for a time, okay? So you've got prophets, priests, and kings, basically, in the Old Testament. A couple of other people, but for the most part, it's prophet, priests, and kings, that the Spirit comes on them for a time. When Jesus enters, the gospel writers are very clear that Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. I know it's freezing. I'm sorry. We got to figure something out with our, it's like smoking hot when I started, and now like I'm getting cold, and I'm yelling and running around. So I understand. I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, they show him to be the prophet, priest, and king. He actually takes all three of these roles. They get wrapped up into one person, and it says the Spirit comes on him, okay? Now, when that happens, though, uh, the Spirit is on the prophet, priest, and king until his death in John 19. It's in John 19 that Jesus hangs on the cross, and he dies, and it says that he gave up his spirit. All right, you'll see it up there. I think he gave up his spirit. However, that's not what it actually says in the Greek. Commentators talk about this. Uh, Dr. Burge, who's one of our teaching uh, um, folks, comes in and teaches here. He writes about it in his commentary on John. The, the word in the Greek actually is he gave up the spirit. And not really even that he gave up the spirit. Um, it's actually the fact that he handed over the spirit. So he dies, he gives up the spirit, and then the next time that we see Jesus talking to the disciples after his resurrection, it says that he breathed on them, ruach on them, spirit, breath, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't come fully to indwell his people until we get to Acts chapter 1. Now, when we have all this context in mind, Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, spirit is on him, Okay? until he then breathes that onto his followers. 
Who are his followers? You and me. Do you know how we're described in the New Testament? We're described as prophets. 1 Corinthians 12 says that we can prophesy. We're described as priests, priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter 2. We're described as kings and queens, rulers with God, Revelation 1, and in a number of other places throughout the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit is now on us. This is a massive shift. And so when we get Acts 1 and Acts 2, where it seems like this two-stage thing that's happening, we say that we don't think that that's intended for all people at all time. It's just this is, the, this is when this like new era begins. And so the Holy Spirit comes. We think it's a one-off issue here. In fact, uh, it's not just this new epic, this new time. Uh, it's this brand new thing that God's people would get the Holy Spirit to indwell them forever. So um, this is a one-off event, uh, not necessarily something we think should be repeated all the time. Number three, that was the first two, right? Did I give you two? Good. Number three, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is one of the many metaphors that describe salvation. Basically, it's a synonym for salvation. So when we say someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's just another way of saying they got saved. That's when they became a follower of Christ. That's what I think is the best reading and understanding of New Testament here. All right, here's what I want you to do. Um, I know this is a lot. This is a lot. So, uh, first of all, if it's boring, I'm at least trying to be fast, okay? Because <laughs> there's nothing worse than, like, slow and boring, all right? Better to be fast than boring. Um, but I also want you to do this. You're all cold anyway. So everybody stand up real quick. Go ahead. Just stand up. Come on. All right. You don't need to stretch. Just do, you got to do something, though. You got to move with me. Do something. You need to get warm anyway. All right. All right. Good. Sit down. I got more. Here we go. We're, we're, we're moving. We're moving. We're moving. So, number three. Third reason why I, I don't think it's best to read the New Testament uh, with that we should pursue a second baptism is that to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is just another metaphor to describe salvation. That's number three. So there's a bunch of metaphors, being filled with the Spirit, uh, cl being clothed with the Spirit, Luke 24, empowering, Acts 1, pouring out, which is uh, Joel, and then uh, repeated again in Acts 2. Jesus soaks us, drenches us, dunks us, immerses us, sinks us in the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism means. Baptism just means to be, to be immersed. And so when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, this is something that Jesus does. When we give our life to Jesus, when we say, Jesus, you are Lord, I want you. Jesus says, I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Dunk you in the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an initiation rite. Okay? We don't get this because baptism is not something that in our culture, we just don't practice it all that much, to be honest. Even in the Christian church, I feel like, uh, honestly, I think Muslims actually understand baptism better than Christians. And that, that to me, is kind of sad. Uh, we don't see the need for it. We think it's just something that, you know, like, ah, it's not that big of a deal if I, if I, get if I have water baptism or not. Like, I'll, I'll do it at some point or something like that. But baptism is an initiation rite. It's saying, I'm moving from here to here. In fact, if you're an ultra-Orthodox Jew or a really conservative Muslim and you become a Christian and get baptized, your family will hold a funeral for you because they will consider you dead. They will consider you no longer a part of the family. That's the power of baptism. And so when we get baptized by Jesus in the Spirit, Jesus is saying that we are no longer in that family. We are now in his family. I'd love to spend some time uh, talking about 1 Corinthians 12. I can't, just don't have space for it. Um, so let's just jump on to number four, fourth reason. 
Fourth reason, and this is, to me is probably the strongest one, honestly. I'm kind of making them stronger as I go. There is not a single command in the New Testament to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit or to say it another way, to pursue a second experience of the Holy Spirit. So after you get past the book of Acts, okay, and in the book of Acts, it's not a command, something to seek. It's just a statement that's made in Acts 1 and Acts 11. That's the only place that this is even mentioned as a concept in the New Testament. Paul writes 13 letters. He doesn't talk about it once in any of the 13 letters he writes. Peter writes some letters. James writes a letter. John writes some letters. None of them mention this concept of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. They certainly don't talk about it as some secondary thing that you should pursue after salvation. If this was the normative expectation of all Christians of all time, you would expect to see this command peppered throughout the rest of the New Testament. I mean, like, this would be a huge deal. Like, yes, you're a Christian. That's great. You're following Jesus. But you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. You, you can bet your bottom dollar that Paul's going to talk about it left and right. And he doesn't. It's never mentioned throughout the whole rest of that time. So, uh, the other thing is, sorry, let me see. Yeah, I do want to Okay, so the other thing is, um, tongues as an evidence of Salvation, or, or excuse me, baptism in the Holy Spirit uh, is also uh, not commanded. Now, uh, tongues is an evidence, okay? I think that there are a number of folks that have the gift of tongues. I do not. I've asked for it. God hasn't given it to me. It's fine. Maybe he will someday. I don't know. I think it's available and open uh, to any follower of Christ, okay? I think that's what 1 Corinthians 12 teaches, what we talked about uh, last week. But uh, he hasn't given it to me. I don't think, though, that it's an evidence that I don't have the Holy Spirit then. It's actually one of the things I would have talked about if I could have talked about 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, what we do hear Paul saying is evidence of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says these are the fruit of the Spirit. You want to know if somebody has the Spirit? That's how you'll know. Uh, James actually says that fruit of the Spirit is good works. John actually says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. They will, you will know my disciples by their love. Nobody after the books, book of Acts says anything about tongues as being an evidence of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to ask the question, though, what do we do with the two passages that I referenced earlier? Okay, I talked a little bit about Acts 1 and 2. I think that that's a one-off. All right, this is a whole new epic, uh, epoch, excuse me, that's starting, Okay. What about the other two, though, where there seem to be this two-stage, like salvation and then gift of the Spirit? So let's just look at those two passages real quick. Acts 19, we'll start with the, the last one first. Acts 19, verses 1 through 3. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior, arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Pentecostal theologians will say that they believe that when it references disciples, they're talking about Jesus' disciples. I don't think that that's what is being talked about here. It just says disciples. Um, they also, when this Pentecostal doctrine of kind of a second experience or the second baptism was coming about, you only had the King James Version uh, of, as an English translation. The NIV, the NASB, the ESV, whatever it is that you have, wasn't available at that point in the early 1900s. And the King James actually said, uh, there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? Okay, now the NIV says when you believed. Uh, Dr. Green actually thinks that it ought to actually say, uh, have you believed and received the Holy Spirit? 
Okay, he thinks that that's actually a, a better translation of, of something that's a little tricky here. But either way, regardless of how you read it, it's pretty obvious that these are not Jesus' disciples. These are John's disciples. John had a number of disciples, people that had heard the message of repentance and that there was someone, a Messiah that was coming. They were John's disciples. Uh, they had been baptized uh, um, by John, but they did not know Jesus yet. So when Paul meets them, he's like, well, let me tell you about the one that John was telling you about. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. You should be baptized in the name of Jesus. They do. They say, yes, we want Jesus. That's who it is. That's what we want. So they become followers of Jesus. They get baptized in the name of Jesus, and they get the Holy Spirit right then. So it's not actually a two-stage. It's actually one. Okay? Now, that one's fairly easy, I think, to talk about. Acts chapter 8, though, is, actually, is, is definitely the harder one. Acts chapter 8. Flip over there real quick. Acts chapter 8, 14 to 17, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So, this one is, it is a two-stage. There's just no way around it. All right, uh, they were followers of Jesus, been baptized in Jesus, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. Why? That's the question. Why? Okay. So a couple of things. Um, first of all, this is the one and only example of a two-stage process of salvation and lad latter baptism of the Holy Spirit in all of the New Testament. Okay. Assuming we're taking out Acts one. All right, because we think that's like this: the Spirit wasn't around yet, it hadn't hadn't been given yet. So there's actually 22 stories of conversion in the book of Acts. This is the only one with a two-stage process, okay? Also, within all 22 stories of conversion in the New Testament, only three of them uh, have people speaking in tongues as a result, okay? So it's not likely that this one out of 22 instances is the thing that is supposed to be normative for all people for all time. Why would they include this one then? Well, I think it's actually a very important reason. The reason that I think that this was included, why I think it makes the most sense that this would be the outlier, not the normative one, is because this is the first time that the gospel is going outside of Jews, God's chosen people, to Gentiles. So uh, up until this point, you had one church in Jerusalem, okay? If you go back and look at Acts chapter 7, you've got uh, Stephen who gets stoned. Uh, a great persecution breaks out on the church in Jerusalem. Christians have to flee and go to different places. Philip flees Jerusalem, winds up in Samaria while he's in Samaria at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8. He tells these Samaritans about Jesus. They believe in Jesus, and they become Christians. They start to follow Jesus. They get baptized, okay? They leave one family and get baptized into the family of Christ, but they have not received the Spirit. Why? Why? We don't get it, right? Because we live 2,000 years from that time, and we're all Gentiles for the most part. I think there may be somebody in here who's a, a, a Jew, but most of us are Gentiles. And we're like, what's wrong with Gentiles? Gentiles are awesome. Like, like we're, we're super cool, right? Uh, but at the time, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was mad racism going on. Ethnocentric Jews could not even hang out with a Samaritan. Not that they would want to, but they couldn't. They couldn't eat with them. They couldn't even touch them because that would make them unclean. 
And they had long-standing hatred for one another. That's why the story of the Good Samaritan is such a shocking story. I mean, Jews, like, even to this day, Jews that are not followers of Jesus, they hate that story. They don't like it. See, the Samaritans actually thought that they followed the one true God, Yahweh. In fact, they had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Jews had the temple in Jerusalem. Samaritans had the temple. They said, we're actually the true descendants of Abraham. We're the true descendants of Jacob, Isaac, all right? And so there's this hatred. And what I think God is doing here, why there is a two-stage here, is that Jesus has come to unify. This is exactly what Joel had prophesied about in Joel uh, that Peter then repeats in Acts chapter 2, that God's Spirit's going to be poured out on everybody. So uh, I think the best explanation, this is going to be up there. Uh, is it already up there? Best explanation, number two, that I've heard is that this is the first time that the gospel and the Spirit is making the jump from Jews to Gentiles, okay? So uh, Peter, God did it on purpose where Peter and John would then have to come from the Jerusalem church to Samaria to lay hands on them that the Holy Spirit would come because Jesus was trying to unite us together. Otherwise, what would have happened is there probably would have been a permanent split. The Jews would have had their Christian church, their worship, and Samaritans would have had their own. Now, we've still done it, right? Because we've got, you know, the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Like, it's sad. It's not what God wanted. But in this moment, the reason that this happens this way is because he's trying to show there is intended to be unity. What he says in, in Acts chapter 2 when Peter's quoting Joel, he's like, God's going to pour out his spirit. It's going to be on old men and young men, rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, Right? Men and women, okay? Jesus is not a racist. Jesus is not a sexist. Jesus is not an ageist or a classist. Jesus is intended to unite all of us together. And so in this one instance where there is a two-stage, I think it's very much on purpose to say, look, you need each other. Jews, you need the Samaritans. Samaritans, you can't do this without the Jews. You are now no longer your own thing. You are now united as one in Christ. And this would have been a shocking thing for a Jew who a month ago couldn't even talk to, have a meal with, hang out with, touch a Samaritan, right? And, and Samaritans, trust me, there was no love loss on their side either. And now they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They're supposed to be eating together regularly, hanging out with one another, sharing resources with one another, right? Doing ministry together. Man, this was a huge thing. And I think this is actually why we have this two-stage here. So, the Samaritan believers had to be connected to the apostles. Jewish leaders of the church in Jerusalem so that they could be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This began the work of the Spirit unifying Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, old and young, men and women. So, recap. Best reasons against the Pentecostal doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number one, it's a really new doctrine. Doesn't make it wrong, but it should make it suspect at least. Number two, baptism in the Holy Spirit is best read in the New Testament as another metaphor for salvation in Christ. It's a synonym for salvation. Number three, there is no consistency in how the baptism of the Spirit happens in the New Testament or baptism in the Spirit happens in the New Testament. Number four, there's no command in any of the New Testament letters to be baptized in the Spirit as something to seek after salvation. So what is this third option that I talked about, right? I said we don't believe in cessationism, all right? We don't think that uh, um, some of the gifts no longer apply. We think that they still apply today, all right? But we also, I'm saying I don't, I don't hold to uh, this Pentecostal doctrine of a baptism, uh, a second baptism of the Spirit that shows itself in speaking in tongues. 
So what's this kind of third way that I'm talking about? And I'm not alone in this. This is not like some cool new thing that I came up with. <laughs> this is actually what a, a number of theologians worldwide, uh, pastors, leaders. What should we be looking for then? So in Acts, it's clear that those who were baptized in the Spirit, okay, followers of Jesus, also had further fillings of the Spirit. Uh, we see this in Acts 4, Acts 11, Acts 13. Peter is filled with the Spirit after he's already received the Holy Spirit. Paul, who gets the Holy Spirit when he becomes a follower of Jesus, uh, um, is also later filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, some would say this uh, idea, one baptism, many fillings. Okay? One baptism, many fillings. Uh, we should desire an ongoing filling of God's Spirit. That's the third option. Okay? Just simply the fact that like, we have been baptized into the Spirit, we have all the Spirit, but we should continue to desire a filling of the Holy Spirit. Not a second one, unless I can also have a third one, and a fourth one, and a fifth one, and a sixth one. Like I need it, right? There's all kinds of things that I need the Spirit of God to empty out of my life. Sin, consumerism, nationalism, pride, arrogance, like all the stuff that I need the Holy Spirit to, to remove, empty me of, and I need to then be filled like, this isn't a one-time thing. Have you ever had a meal and then walked away and been like, oh, I'm good for life now? No, you'll die. You'll shrivel up, right? We need the Holy Spirit to continue to fill us. It's what we have to desire, more of the Spirit, a new filling, a fresh filling. That's what I want for our church. Look, I think that Pentecostals err in how they read Scripture on this particular issue of baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? But I actually think that they're right in their desire to want more of the Holy Spirit, in their desire to have the Holy Spirit do beautiful, powerful works in them and through them. Quite honestly, they lead the way for us. Yes, I don't think that the second baptism is something that we should pursue. I don't think that that's a biblical understanding. I think it leads to all kinds of problems. However, they're right to say, God, we want all of you. Whatever you have, give it to us. We don't want to hold you back. We want to experience your power. Your God, the same God who did these things in Jesus, who did these things in days of old, who did these things in the apostles, in the, in the New Testament, who's been doing them throughout generations and now is still doing them today. We want it. Give it all to us. That's, friends, what we desire here at TLC. So we don't believe that the gifts have ceased. We don't believe that there is a second baptism that we should go after, but we do think that the Spirit wants to do some stuff. That's what we want. And so as a response, we're going to worship. And so the band's going to come up. We're going to sing uh, a couple of songs. And it's an opportunity for us to say, God, more of you, all of you, whatever you have, we want it, we desire it. Would you join me in asking for that? Would you join me in asking God for that for our church but also for you as an individual. It's got to be something that you want. It's got to be something that, that I want, not just lip speak, right? But like truly, like God, help me. If you don't feel it, then tell him that. God, I don't feel it. I don't really know. Help me. Because that's, that's what God wants, I believe, for his church and for our church. Father God, we want to be a people who are so in love with you with Jesus and what he did in his death and resurrection. We are so desirous of all that you have for us to be formed by your spirit, filled with your spirit, renewed, energized, empowered with your spirit. Whatever you have for our church, God, please 
Forgive us if we are ever limiting you because we don't believe. Remove our unbelief. God, forgive us for the things that we fill our lives with and push you out. God, remove those things that we might experience more of you. We want you, Spirit, all of you, come. Fill us, fill this place for your glory, that your kingdom might move forward. In the name of Jesus, we pray.